Welcome to another edition of the Work Life Hub podcast. To find out more and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.eu. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Here we are with uh, Professor Laurie Balin, Professor of Management Emerita at the MIT Sloan School of Management, studying mainly the relationship between managerial practice and employees' lives, particularly gender and diversity. Um, I have read your book, um, Breaking the Mold, Beyond Work-Family Balance, the one that you updated in 2006, and Thank you very much, Professor Balin, for being with us. We met at the Work uh, and Family Researchers Network in uh, New York in June, and this was in a, a session on the construct, the work-life construct. And in your book, you refer to work-life integration. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about these nuances and, and what is your line of thought? Certainly. I actually refer usually to work personal life integration because I've never really liked the seeming dichotomy between work and life as if work were not part of life. In fact, it's often too much a part of life, which is one of the problems. So I, I know there are issues about work family, but and work life, which now seems to be accepted, still logically doesn't make sense to me. Uh, the integration part is more uh, that the typical notion of balance seems to me very wrong. Balance has the connotation of a balance scale, where if one side goes up, the other side goes down, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it has the implication of it has to be exactly equal. And if we, of course, we know that neither of those things need to be true. So integration really gives the idea that these are two domains which, in fact, are integrated in every life, though it's done in different ways, and which, if we could integrate them also in terms of organizational practice and societal expectations, I think we would have easier organizations for people to, if you will, integrate or harmonize, as some people say, both their work lives and their personal lives. It. Uh seems to me that in especially the corporate world um, people still cannot really own up to being a parent or a carer at their workplace and they have to shut down somehow these identities and try to solve all of the problems outside uh, the working hours where you especially say in your book that everyone has a personal life with its own legitimate claims um, why do you think managers are still uh, wanting these performant workers without any uh, outside obligations? Or why, why is it still such a taboo in the workplace? Well, and I think it's a big mistake, even for the effectiveness of the work, as I, I'll explain in a little while. But this separation of spheres, that there's a work sphere 
and there's a domestic sphere, and the work sphere tends to be male, and in, you know, and the domestic sphere tends to be female. Of course, started in this post, you know, with the industrial revolution when the the separation came. And for a while, there was this gendered aspect to it. And it's now assumed to be necessary both to get the work done and to get the domestic work done. And it's creating problems for men and women, but also creating problems for the effectiveness of work. Because people, in fact, both men and women, learn skills in the domestic sphere, whether it's taking care of other people or working in the community. These are skills that actually are the kinds of skills that organizations now want. They don't get the benefit of allowing their employees to develop those skills by insisting that uh, they be always accessible and that the more the work, the better worker they are. So it's a situation where some historical beginnings are interfering with the way the world is working now. And what kind of skills do you refer to specifically? Well, there are skills that you develop leadership skills in community work, which organizations seem to want. You develop skills about teamwork, about delegating in the family, about cooperative work. All of these are skills that organizations say they want, but their practices seem more to reinforce skills of competition and hierarchy, and then they don't value at all the skills that people learn in their personal lives, which they, at the same time as they say, they would like to have more of those kind of skills. In your work, uh, you have seen so many companies and workplaces. Uh, do you have, does one or two come to mind where you felt or you saw that they really got it right, that they were able to, to respect this and, and, and put it to good use for the benefit of the company? Well, <clears throat> it's, it's complicated. We've had some good experiences with a few work units, but it's hard to sustain it. There's a very interesting example of an English company, I can't remember the name, where a manager had to come in to turn it around and did so by uh, actually allowing employees much more control over the conditions of their work, their time. And in fact, though that was not... His motivation wasn't to allow the workers to have a better personal life. It did, in fact, his motivation was to get the business going, but it did, in fact, give the workers a better mixture of work life and personal life, which made them, of course, more motivated for the work. 
the Best Buy, when they started their results-only work environment experiment, was in a way doing that was a good example. But there you see what happens. A new manager comes in and he cancels it, even though it had been working very well. So you see pockets of it, um, but you don't really, it's hard to see a fully sustained workplace. Uh, SAS, the statistical company, is supposed to be a company that legitimates people's personal lives. I haven't seen it personally, so I always want to be sure, but the way they talk about it and how they describe it, it sounds as if it might be um, a good example. But again, you know, I, I want to see it as it ha- exactly works, not only the way they describe it. Yes, because it so- seems to me also that um, some companies may have very nice brochures or, you know, it comes back in their uh, corporate social responsibility or their communication, but it's not necessarily within the core business strategy or it's not uh, infiltrated or, or really mainstream throughout the entire organization. That's right. And I think one has to be careful not to confuse it with, for example, Google. Google mm. is has this reputation of being such a wonderful company because they provide laundry services and food at any time. But those that kind of environment is really an environment that encourages people to work more. It's not an environment that encourages people to have the time and energy to both be good workers and good carers and participants in the non-work world. So one has to be careful whether the kinds of things that companies do are actually freeing people to have more control over their lives or is actually providing so many services for them so that they can work more and more. Yes, Google is is quite often an example that I I bring up because I was able to go inside the, uh, some of the Google offices and see this for myself, their private chef putting in the paninis into the fridge so that workers can heat it up at midnight. Exactly. And I was thinking, exactly. why would they be there at midnight? Exactly. And yet, that's, and yet often that's given uh, you know, as a good place to work. So one has to be careful whether one is being provided with amenities and services that allow you to work more or whether one is being provided with an environment that gives you more autonomy and control to manage both your work life and your personal life in a more integrated way. Yes, not to bring in your private sphere, servicing your private life's needs at the workplace, but to give, yes. And I think that also maybe, uh, would you agree that managers when starting to think about this are put off by imagining that this is going to be very individualized, that they're going to have to cater for 200 kinds of different needs 
and 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 they are afraid of of this and how I this can work in practice well because look at the assumption i think you're exactly right their assumption is that this works the way that family policies now work which is that an employee negotiates with the manager for individual accommodations the manager says yes or no but if the manager says yes says but it's a secret don't tell anybody because mm-hmm. we don't want to spread this around yeah. but it's never going to work that way it can only work when a work group by itself decides how they're going to get the work done and they will take into account people's schedules and needs and they will negotiate and compromise and then they will get the work done and the manager's job is not to deal with each individual's schedule in any way but to provide the resources that the work group needs to get that work done so it it has to be a collective decision of the group of people who are actually doing the work in an interdependent kind of way and but wouldn't be there the risk that those let's say with little small children would always want to come a little bit late and leave early and book the same holidays to correspond with the school holidays and then it's the non-parent colleagues who would have to pick up the slack well this would have to be a negotiation within the group and it would have to be one of the issues of fairness uh would have to be discussed um the experience is that people there first of all there's more room for people to have flexible arrangements than we think there is because the way work is organized is is not very effective you know assuming that everybody is always there and that you can immediately get a hold of everybody is not an effective way of working because it means you never plan you never think ahead you know everything is ad hoc which yes. is this firefighting crisis mode it's not a very good yes. way to work anyway So if you plan ahead and you do some multi-skilling so that people can play for each other and you don't you don't only say it's parents with children everybody has a personal life and in some way single people may need more time for personal life if they ever want to get established with someone than the married people <laughs> <laughs> they need to yes, invest more time. Yes. So it you know the assumption is that everyone that build skills yeah, so or for avocations they want to run a marathon or or they mm-hmm. just like to read and all of those activities rejuvenate people. So they play positively yeah. back to the work. working all the time mm. is not the most effective way to work it leads to rigidities lack of creativity lack of innovation so you need timeouts so everybody needs them so you don't even yeah. need to know why you just the assumption is 
nobody should be working all the time and only sleeping otherwise because it's not good for the work it's not good for the people it's not good for anything yeah so when uh, to to convince managers to convince organizations to finally uh, you know go with the times and and to to change um, which would be the arguments that you would be in favor of using? I don't think arguments will ever do it. I think mm -hmm. you have to convince them to experiment and okay. take a small, you know, don't do the whole organization at a time. Take a mm -hmm. small unit and see what happens. And I think you have to experience it. I don't think argument is going to do it. Mm -hmm. So so they need to pilot, yes. they need to be willing to give it a little bit of time exactly. and to see what will work for them. Exactly, exactly. And to work through the issues that come up. And, and those are the kinds of interventions and experiments we've done in organizations. And each mm -hmm. time we could make changes that actually had this double advantage, what we call the dual agenda, that helped employees integrate their lives better and therefore made a more equi equitable situation for both men and women um, mm -hmm. and also increased the effectiveness of the work. But it has to be worked at and... Uh, Somebody then has to take it over because we've had successful, we've had a lot of successes, but not all of them were sustained. Sometimes when we disappeared, it all fell back again into the old patterns. So it's a process that has to be continuously activated and monitored. Um, and, and I'm quite curious, interested in this, because um, I would think that uh, the role could be somewhere for the unions or the union representative to, to remain such a safeguard, because with fluctuations, if the managers change or even then the staff changes, there's no one there with a sort of uh, memory within the organization to remind, but we used to do this and it was... It worked and it was really good for all of us. Um, whereas I believe that now unions, uh, trade unions are also weakening. So do, do you see any link with collective agreements or bargaining or, or some kind of union influence on this? Well, I think certainly potentially. Uh, my impression is that unions have actually not been as interested in these issues as they might have been. Although mm. I think some unions are changing and are doing more of this. I think also HR departments can play a role unless they see themselves only as servicing the profits of the organization. So mm. I think there are a number of, and I think outsiders can play, whether it's consultants or researchers coming in, can also play a role. But the danger, as you say, of a new manager coming in and just saying, this is for the birds, I don't want it, mm. is very strong. So, I mean, the business schools have a role here. Mm. You know, and I don't think they're doing a very good job. 
No, I don't think business schools are um, taking any of this into their, um, even in the executive trainings when they're doing, you know, postgraduate shorter courses uh, uh, to, to train the already graduates or those that have graduated and are already working. Yeah, I used to do some of that in our executive, and it was never perceived as very popular. Mm. It was never the part of the program that got the high ratings. Okay, and Ratings are very important because this is revenue coming into the schools. So they began to drop it. And, and why do you think the ratings, why do you think it was not so popular? Well... I haven't done it for a long time. So by now, you know, this is more in the air. People are more concerned about it. The only people I ever got a positive response for from were executives who had grown-up daughters. Mm. And they, they were yes. beginning to understand this. Mm. But at that time when I was doing it, there weren't that many. Hmm. It certainly always registers well with women executives and men, you know. But unless this is seen also as a problem for men, we're not going to get very far. Yes, and I wanted to also ask you about, um, for example, you know, there are some new initiatives around uh, quotas for women on boards uh, and in decision-making, and and. And do you think that there would be some kind of government policy or some kind of legislation that could um, trigger or facilitate through a broader policy context and kind of filter in into the world of organizations? I've read an article that you wrote about the um, paternity leave and the cult of motherhood after that famous baseball player took his three days off. Yes. So, so do you think that there's a role for government policy here or quotas or something from the outside? Um, less likely in this country mm. than in where you are. Um, I mean, quotas would never work here. Mm. Uh, I, th- I think, I mean, we have no family policies and that's absurd. We don't even have a paid maternity leave. Mm. So there surely is room for family policies. The quotas is interesting. I mean, when when Norway started the quotas for women on boards, mm. you know, it, it was a, you probably know more than I do, but my understanding is it was a little rocky at first. Neither the women were very much in favor of it, nor the boards. But as it began to work, even though it didn't apply to as many women as they would have liked, there was a lot of over the same women doing yeah. it. As, as it began to work, both the women and the boards realized that there really is talent there. Mm. And so it wasn't only you're doing a favor to women. Yes. There really was, the women began to see they had talents in this, and the boards began to appreciate the talent. So it's another, a quota is another way of saying we've got to experiment, we've got to try it, or we won't know. It's just that in this country, you cannot get away with a quota. Yes. Um, 
there was in Norway, there was a very interesting, they also had the quota for men to take paternity leave. And, uh-huh. and that, yes. that really also triggered the, the culture change, right? If, if I'm, exactly. I'm right, it's, it's really this culture change that, that we need. Um, and I wanted to also ask you, um, what do you think about the impact of the financial crisis and the economic crisis, you know, this 2008, 2009? I feel that now uh, we seem to have found this excuse in the crisis of why we're not doing this before we had probably other excuses. But uh, do you think that the, the crisis really would have an effect or really had an effect on, on why we're not progressing in this? Well, it's interesting because a crisis like this should in fact have made it more imperative to do this mm. because what you could have done You could, instead of just laying people off, you could have shared the work more widely, mm. giving people a little bit more time to themselves, indeed, and for people who had a choice between being laid off or being cut back a little, I think the choice would have been easy to be mm. cut back. That would have provided more time for them to integrate the rest of their lives and might have provided some learning and so which would be useful for them personally as well as for the companies they work with. But I don't mm-hmm. think it happened that way, certainly not in this country. No. This country, there's partly because benefits, you know, health care and all that is on employers in this country, you know, yes. still have this crazy system. And so two part-time people, just as an example, cost more than one full-time person. Mm -hmm. So they are less likely to think in those terms. I think Mm -hmm. it's still very foolish. It could have been an opportunity to really move this forward. But at Mm -hmm. least in this country, I don't think it was taken. Mm. And and maybe just one final uh, question. What... Uh, also particularly interests us is um, spreading this movement uh, to all of the working people. For now, it's really talking, we're really only talking or addressing managers and particularly those who work in the field where there's a lot of IT and they can then work from home or on their mobiles. Um, What do you think it will ever Um, kind of trickled down to working class or people working in manufacturing or industry? There is, interestingly enough, a real push now, or at least it's in the newspapers, it's on the air, of service workers, you know, fast food workers, so, and the issues around their unpredictable schedules. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a real opportunity there to reorganize the way all these kinds of, you know, low-paid services are organized Mm. in such a way that people have more control over their schedules, which they absolutely need to survive, and that, in fact, will probably be better for the companies because they'll have more reliable staffing. So I think there's a real opportunity now whether people will take it. But 
this unpredictable schedule for these low-paid jobs is untenable. Yes, you know, it's very bad for their health. It's and, just terrible yes. for their ch- children, you know, for anything. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I think there's been enough. We had, well, this was on the minimum wage, but we still, we had fast food workers striking, going out, mm-hmm. you know, Um and they're clearly, I mean, this would be a place for the, op, the uh, what are they called? Unions, the trade yeah, unions. I wasn't even thinking of unions, but unions certainly could have a place here. Mm. But so could the analysts who do these optimizing mm-hmm. analytics, you know, mm-hmm. who can figure out how to deal with schedules that both meet the flexible needs of the employer and gives the predictability to the employees. Mm-hmm. And that's probably is going to have to be, there's a team of employees that is in charge of sort of one thing and they work out how they schedule it. I mean, in some mm-hmm. way, imitate, you know, this notion that it's got to be collective decision-making at the working level. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think there's a real possibility, and it certainly applies maybe even stronger to the low-wage workforce, which has so many fewer options. Mm. And just in closing, if you could give uh, one piece of advice to a CEO, what would it be? Ah, interesting. I think I would tell him to, and I say him because there's yes. so many I would tell him to think about his own life and how it evolved and whether there are things he missed in his life. And by now he probably has a very flexible life. He can do whatever he wants. And ask himself how he can uh, create the same kind of opportunities for all his workers and to give them a chance to experiment with changes. And he may be surprised it may help his company a lot. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Professor Balin, for taking the time. It has been very, very interesting. And I'm sure that uh, all of your wisdom and, and experience is going to be very helpful for generations to come. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Yeah.